Hello and welcome to the 155th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what the influences are, and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focused on the developer themselves, and in the second half, we discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is Unbox Newbie's Adventure by Prospect Games. Andrew, who are you and what do you do? I am a game developer. Uh, I run my own business in Eccles, uh, and I basically just spend all day bossing other people around. Excellent. Eccles, as in the cake. Yes, the one and only. Yes, the one and only. It's been such a long time since I've been up there. Sorry about that. Um, I'm, I'm based in the deepest darkest London. You can probably tell by the accent. But um, yes, wonderful. So um, how did you make your start making video games? Uh, I guess I, I started making games when I went on a games design course at Salford Uni in 2007. And prior to that, I actually wanted to be a games journalist. And the thing that I think kind of knocked me into wanting to uh, develop games was I had a media studies course at college for A-levels. And uh, one of the requirements, one of the bits of coursework was making a short movie. And I said, well, can I make a, a piece of machinima? Which at the time, you know, that meant a video or a movie in a game engine as opposed to the yeah. channel that it's now become. And, you know, the course leader was like, yeah, whatever. That sounds weird. Do it. So I did that. And through making this film, uh, it kind of gave me an insight into how games are made. Um, it made me research things a bit, and I've, I've been an avid gamer, super into gaming since the age of like three. And so I, I just suddenly started thinking, oh, you know, games development something that might be pretty cool. So I went to university, um, uh, and it was there where I met the people who I ended up forming Prospect with uh, many years later. But it, it kind of it completely changed me as a person. It really opened me up. Um, I kind of found my footing as um, not just a games developer, but a, a kind of, a, I guess, product manager, uh, project manager. Um, you know, I always took the team leader role in whatever projects I took part in. So it really helped kind of open my eyes to the kind of person that I could be. And it was shortly after leaving uni that I kind of realized that, okay, I want to keep doing this. Like it, a lot of people, like a lot of people on our course left uh, and went straight into things like Tesco's and whatnot. They never pursued a job in games development because uh, the course wasn't amazing. But one thing it was good at was grinding you down and getting you prepared for what life making games can be like. And like, we came out of that thinking, yeah, we want to keep doing this. It can get rough, but it's, it's better than stacking shelves. And so that's, that's really how I got my start in all this. Right. Um, so that's an extraordinary thing is that you have, you know, 20 years ago, these things didn't exist. These courses didn't exist. This whole, you know, industry as it was, was, was changing and developing and inventing itself. And now you have these lecturers and courses telling you, well, this is how we do stuff, kind of, we think, although we're literally making them up as we go along. Um, did you feel that when you were studying? Oh, yeah. 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 Our, our course was, um, I mean, the history of the course was it was founded by a music lecturer who was interested in games. And then the, the legend is that he went mad and disappeared and left the country and no one ever heard from him again. And so the course then became this just sort of vestigial thing on the side of the university that existed 
but didn't really have a purpose. And that was the course I chose to went to, went to, to, to study on. So it was an interesting time. Uh, yeah. And I know that th- this is not a unique story. I've, I've spoken to a lot of developers who sort of in the mid to late 2000s went on newly formed game courses and their, their experiences. You know, it was a lot of similar experiences. And I think that now there's a lot of games courses that are... Um, maturing and getting a lot better at this and making sure that they are contemporary and up to date. I mean, just in Manchester alone, we have institutes like FutureWorks and SSR, uh, both providing uh, really high quality courses in a range of disciplines. Uh, half of my team comes from, oh, they graduated from Teesside University, which has, I think, one of the most reputable set of games courses in the country. So things have definitely changed in the past sort of seven years since I graduated, which is very good. Yeah, um, as the industry matures, and I think about three or four years ago, maybe more than that now, there was this big sort of debate and yelling match about crunch and how that's disgusting and you shouldn't be having creatives working 12 hours a day for, or even longer for X amount of people. They shouldn't do that. No other, no other industry does that. No wonder industry thinks that's okay. Oh, well, I mean, I uh, mean, I, I, I found know. that it's it's surprisingly in the creatives and digital realms. It's it's sorry, yeah, sorry, you're right. Yeah, it's yes, very it's yeah. But you know, it, it's it's one of these things where it come. I think that comes from uh, it comes from both a lack of of practice and discipline, and mm. on one end, and then on the other end, a lack of of caring. Um, empathy yeah, yeah. Uh, and and somewhere in the middle most of us fall including prospect I mean I never intended I mean I'm, I'm, I've run production here and I've never intended our team to end up in, in periods of crunch and despite that over the 31 months of development we have had some horrendous periods of time where we have had to uh, work ridiculous hours there was a period where uh, the, our lead designer Jack and myself uh, in order to get our game ready for EGX and to get it to a level ready for our publisher we were doing sort of eight nine hours um you know sort of eight till six seven o'clock shift we would go home and eat and then we'd come back in at nine and work till like two three and we rinse repeated that for most of august of 2015 and it was you know it was horrendous but like there was just such a sheer volume of content that we were contractually obliged to create at that point where it was like we got to do it we have no time we're running out of money Um, we have deadlines to meet Mm. Um, and it was you know to be fair it was our first major game project so yeah we ended up doing a lot of unnecessary crunch Um, and I think why it continues at larger studios is similar reasons and also yeah it's kind of a meat grinder Um, if you know that you can replace part of your art farm with any one of the thousands of budding young artists waiting outside with applications it's like well why not you know why come up why have better practices why be more disciplined when you can just yeah but that's a, that, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy that isn't it so yeah it's a, it's a dangerous path to to tread yeah and it's, it's but, and it's certainly something that we yeah. we want to avoid i mean with our uh, hopeful next projects hopefully we reach them and if we do we want to try you know we've been doing a lot more planning already when we've been considering mm. all, all the things that we could do next you know we, we jumped into unbox very naively um thinking oh we'll do this and we'll do that and we'll worry about this stuff later and the stuff that we wanted to do right off the bat we should have saved for later and the stuff that we said we'd save for later we should have been doing right off the bat and, and that's usually why you end up doing crunch and doing you know two shifts every day 
for a month straight down the line is because you didn't plan things out so you know it, it's something we're trying to avoid as best as possible next time but yeah it's, it's easy to put the hard stuff in the um in the top shelf and actually no that should be right at waist height we should be doing that now that's the core stuff the, the flannel we can do I'm, I'm not sure if it was i'm just assuming maybe i'm wrong to assume this but uh it's uh it's, an, it's human nature to not do want to do the hard stuff uh, but uh that's the that's usually the most important stuff that's why that's why we do it if it's difficult that's why we do it exactly okay so um i mean it's obviously this is your first first title so we're going to delve deep into that and you've already given your, your you know your history um and that's great uh, you you are a graduate i mean to to enter un- the university at 2007 is that right and that's an extraordinary time because that's when uh, the iphone arrived and that's when indie gaming became a thing on the xbox 360 do, do you remember those times oh yeah i think technologically culturally now that we've had sort of 10 years since then, 2007 is probably the most important year of this century. Um, mm. Everything changed at that point. Uh, or ev- the, the change began from, yep, the boom in mobile, uh, the indie gold rush, uh, platforms radically changing how they do business, uh, the rise of Steam. You know, I remember then Steam sales um, were kind of a... It was relatively new. I mean, Steam was only... What, three four years old at that point and so the steam sales in 2007 that was like this whole new thing like what you can get 20 games for like four quid you know th- it was completely unheard of i still remember logging on to steam every week to see oh what's the new games out no one does that anymore no no y- yes you know, steam, you, steam used to be a discovery platform it used to it did y- yeah. if you really if you were coming to steam that was like you were part of an elite privileged class and everyone right. it was an amazing yeah. feeling and you know, now it's just like you know, there's sixty games coming out a day. If you say you can, in fact, by the end, yeah, by the time we finish this podcast, sixty games may have been released. You know, it's um, it's a good and bad thing, uh, but um, it's just uh, it's just the way where it is now. But uh, yeah, uh, fascinating uh, environment that we've seen over the last ten years, and no one, least of all me, and maybe yourself, saw it coming. Um, it's like, how did this happen? How did the barrier of entry drop so far uh, to to be in this place where all this content is flooding us? And okay, it's it's, it's fine, and it's um, as long as you you've got the chops and you actually produce something of worth, which you've done here, then. You know, it it it, it, it um, the work should speak for itself. Well, it's definitely that's something that we definitely noticed almost too late. So while we were at uni, mm. we were we were doing small two three man teams developing titles, which was effectively we were indie devs. We just didn't weren't calling ourselves that because that was also a relatively new term. Uh, and once we'd graduated in 2010, you know, the indie boom had really taken off. Uh, things were radically changing. We mm in our minds had built up this idea of oh we've got to get into AAA so we were all trying to do AAA and it was only a few years after that that there was this you know sudden realization that's like wait you know we basically were indie devs we had the most fun of our lives when we it was just three of us in a bedroom trying to code on a laptop here and a PC over there and you know just trying to figure things out so Hmm. let's get back to that and I think when we started 
uh, I mean, we basically cut our jobs, put all our money together in the middle of 2014 and started developing in UE4. And then it was about five months later that we did the game jam that spurred Unbox and, and created that. And that was really like, for us, that was our, our final shot. And I think for most people it was as well. It, to get into indie development now is insanely difficult. To get into it in 2014 was insanely difficult. Um, but at least we didn't have 700 games coming out every month on Steam it's it's no. become rough like it's an extreme challenge and i think if if we had delayed any longer we'd have been screwed and we've had you know the publishers that we have worked with and the the, the people who have been in the industry longer than us they've all said if you'd released unbox you know two three years earlier you'd have been sitting very pretty um you would have made a lot more money than you'd have made now by just by the fact that you have a decent title that had it come out three years ago, it would have been in a, a marketplace far less saturated. So you would have made more cash. And it's, you know, it's on the one hand painful to hear that. And on the other hand, it's like, well, thank God we made the decision to do this when we did. Because mm. uh, to anyone thinking of getting into indie development now, fresh, it's like, good luck. Like, I don't know how you do it. It's, it's, sane, it's insanely tough. It is. I mean, I go to shows like you mentioned EGX. I've probably seen, I saw, probably saw it there. And apologies for not reaching out to you guys at the time, but there was so much stuff there. So much stuff. Yeah, just, just, so... just the res zone. It's full of 100, uh, at least, I think the last the res we went to last year was like 120 games in the res zone. That's just yeah. the indie titles. And then the, the, tr- is this, the yeah? AAA section is like four times larger. So, yeah, it's mm. unbelievably saturated. And, you know, I go to PAX as well, and that's got you know the indie mega booth and it's not that's not you know a joke it, it i was at east this year and i couldn't get it all in frame in my camera I'm like nope i can't i can't this just it's just it, four or five times bigger than the average ea booth of old yeah which they don't do anymore you know that's in the past it's um yeah interesting times i'm not sure if they're good or bad they're just here and we're in a place where we are uh, and that's why i brought you on the show because i wanted to say look this is awesome you played this game Good. So, um, I'm going to ask you the next question. Then, what? Uh, this is a very odd question, and I've tried to reword it over, over the years and uh, over doing this show. And it's been years I've been doing the show. Um, uh, what is your biggest influences as a creator of things? I'm trying to think. That's a good question. Because it's not, I, I have, I have the the answer for Unbox. Um, you know, we've got tons of influences for that. But for me as a creator, yeah, it's a tough one. Um, I guess there's a, there's, yeah, there's a, there's, I guess there's a couple of different things. Like it, it's largely like it, it's products I think that have inspired me the most. Like I don't really, okay. I don't have many people that I look up to, and I don't mean that in a sort of arrogant way. It, it's more just, I've always like, I, I'm very, um, I'm a very I guess creative person uh, I'm always coming up with weird things and so I like uh, usually it's weird things that inspire me so you know there's been countless number of games and you know, manga and anime there's been certain products I guess in my life that have been sort of like keystone bits of content I guess that's the thing I'm very much I'm very much a child of the 2000s I'm very media driven like I'm obsessed with with it, in, engaging in media so like I remember uh, like Halo 2 is a huge one because that's the uh, that's the game that I made the machinima in, and I was absolutely obsessed with the game. And still today, every time I talk to the guys about design ideas for this or that, at some point I'm going to mention a warthog or a Spartan or something that had a huge impact. Um, I'm trying. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the uh, machinima. 
my my thoughts immediately yeah. went to red versus yeah, blue. Yeah, exactly. That's um, what spurred me on. So you know, okay. yeah, Halo Two had a huge Im- the Halo franchise had a huge impact on me uh, from a games development standpoint. Um, I know. I remember. Um, I did. A, I, I had a trip to America in uh, 2005, and it, I, I was in a, a, a motel late at night. I flick it on. Adult Swim comes on. And it just immediately started playing an anime called Samurai Champloo, and uh, my God, that had a huge effect on me. I'd like, I don't think any, I don't think any single product has ever had a bigger impact on me than that. It just, yeah, it just it was some, it was just so different to anything that I'd ever seen previously. And they publish games now. Um, yes, yeah, and it's, they, their booth at PAX is huge. Yeah. I mean, it's just then it's really, really popular because they're they're um, they're I don't know the curate or the curation of the games that they have on there, incredible. They've got taste. I don't know where they got it from, but they just know. Adult Swim's um, always had a very definable a look and feel. Like I still like to right. this day. Like I still listen to just Adult Swim bumps because just the music so just resonates with me. It's got such a definable feel and style. Mm. Um, mm. So yeah, it, it, it's. I've never really thought about this, but yeah, thing, things like that, like media products, you know, stories, books. Um, I'm really, I'm very into my music and not any one genre. There's just lots of things where I've been listening to them or watching them for, you know, 10 years straight now. And they're the things that really push me because it's like, I want to create something that has, if I can create something that has a lasting impact in the way that these things had a lasting impact on me for just, even just a single person out there, like, That'd be pretty cool, and you know, I, I don't know if I've done that yet, so I've got to keep working at it. Yeah, I think um, I was talking to a friend of mine about uh, pop music versus um, rock music, and well, more sort of like, and it sounded a bit pretentious to me when I was talking like this because it's probably many years ago when I did this, but I said, you know, you know, um, music by the likes of Nirvana and such like that, it basically stood by their work. That's what they did, pretty much. And they, they didn't need to promote themselves that much because the music spent for itself. Whether you like them, their stuff or not, forgive me, but it's, if you get my point, they just, whether it's Soundgarden or Pearl Jam or that, that whole genre uh, that happened. And then with pop music, it's very throwaway. And uh, the, 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 the people, typically it is, and then the people performing it uh, are having to promote themselves to the point where they're going to a mental breakdown. Uh, because they're being pushed and pushed and pushed because they have to be on every television and every radio station now, now, now because that's how they have to promote their work. Whereas if you look at rock musicians, that doesn't they don't need to do that. They just have to play and gig as they see fit. And I think it's a, there's a lot to that. And this is basically being able to stand by your work and say, I made this. And this is why I brought people like yourself onto this show to do that, have the opportunity to stand there and go, I made this. And that's, you know, you can do the promotion, all the promotion as you like, but if the actual quality of the art isn't there, then it's not going to sell, uh, typically. Um, there are exceptions, of course. We, you and I know this. Uh, but typically, that's how it works. Do, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the issue now with, like, saturation again is that, you, you know, you can have, um, you can have a product that's, uh, you know, that comes from your very heart and soul, and it's also a great game, uh, but if you're not thinking about things like marketing, legal, 
uh, routes to market. Uh, I've seen so many games that are great that no one's ever played, no one's ever heard of them, no one will ever talk about them. You know, they don't even get a single review. And to be fair, we're, we're at the upper echelon of that category. The majority of people will never know about Unbox Newbies Adventure because next to nobody's ever covered it or talked about it. And it's very much a game that you know that came from our hearts that you know that it's it's a it's a love letter to the the 90s platformers and games that we played as kids it's obviously it's obviously a game that we did on risk because nobody logically in a boardroom would go yeah we should make a game a rolling game about boxes like that doesn't make any sense no, so it's very no, we'll talk about it later yeah yes. but it's very much a passion project um uh, and despite that you know it's been extremely difficult to get to this point uh, this might be the final game we make there's no guarantee that we're going to be able to make another one um and d- despite the fact that we have something which you know critically it's got about a 70 um amongst user reviews on steam at least it's got about 92 percent rating so i think you know we've we've hit the mark we've made the game that we want to make and we've made a game that people have responded to positively and they love it despite that no one's ever heard of us really in the grand scheme and it's you know we're not alone in that most developers make games that make no money no one covers them no one talks about them and you know they've come from they've come from the soul they're very genuine games from very genuine people um you know for every for every stardew valley that's like that there's a thousand other games that no one ever sees and it's it's just a crying shame yeah i so many builders and um that's what Stardew Valley is. No, it's not true. There's more to it than that. Sorry, that no offense to Stardew Valley fans, including myself. Um, you're right. As for every Stardew Valley, there's a, a million others that of similar ilk and similar quality. I just don't get the light of day. And uh, another reason why I drove myself to drove myself to make this show to to to, to raise the profile of games that were that are worthy of people's attention. I think people have got that now. But um, let's move on to the next question. What developer do you most admire in the industry and why? Hmm. That's a good one. There's quite a few. Um, I'd say, so this is, I'll, I'll give two answers. One on a personal level is our, our designer, Jack. Uh, he's, because uh, he, he joined us. Um, so he was with me at uni. He went to Codemasters. Uh, when I started Prospects, he then came back and, and joined us. He's now set up his own uh, uh He's basically a self-made developer. He's making his own game now. I have a, an immense amount of respect for him because at age 14, he was doing he was making maps in uh, Source Engine for Gary's Mod that were getting like 200,000 downloads. You know, he's done game jams on his own where he's created amazing experiences. He was the only designer effectively on Unbox. Uh, he, he basically is able to do everything that I wish that I could and just never have been able to. Or when I've tried, I've just been crap. Um, and the, it's it's extremely hard to find a designer uh, who's not only as hardworking as him, but can also just take on as much work as he can uh, across so many disciplines. So I have an immense amount of respect uh, for Jack. And you know, now having known him for about a decade, it's he's been one of the people that I've sort of always kind of tried to like check myself against it's like he's always doing new cool stuff so it's like i also feel like i have to be as well um i feel like i'm always playing catch up so i guess on a personal level it within my own spheres definitely jack um i guess on a i'm trying to think there's a few people on a on an industry-wide level i couldn't say anyone in particular uh 
there's definitely a few people. The guys who have been doing this for like more than if you've been doing this for more than 10 15 years i think automatically you've got you've got an immense amount of respect from me you know if you've shipped if you've shipped two or three titles it's like wow that's incredible how the hell are you still going because this is a brutal industry um yeah i don't i, I couldn't i couldn't say anyone in particular because um, it wouldn't be fair to the the others who i have respect for but if you've been doing this for more than 10 15 years i'm probably a fan automatically mm-hmm <laughs> Excellent answer. Yes, it's um, it's it's. I mean, I've had other developers on the show to say things like, "I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings," and, uh, and that sort of thing. Which is lovely thing to say. Lovely thing to say. But um, yeah, it's uh, a great answer, and and uh, to have someone you work with as as a mentor and someone who you admire is is great. Um, it's, it's a great answer. So, last question for the first half. Well done. You made it. You survived. Um, what are you playing right now? <laughs> uh, pff, nothing. Um, unbox for thirty-one months straight. I just I don't play games anymore. The only the only time I'm playing games is for effectively for research purposes. Um, you know, to try one keep a beat on where the industry's at, and and two if it has some kind of relevant purpose to what we're making or what I want to make in the future, I'll try play it. But. Um, yeah, I've just been playing un- uh, Unbox non-stop. It, it's, right. it, it's so difficult to find the time, and especially... I mean, I'm hitting 28 in about, what was it, 17 days' time. Um... You know, I'm getting old. I'm not. I'm. I'm not youthful anymore. Um, I'm now thinking very seriously about things like mortgages and what my adult life is actually going to be like. Um, I've spent so long trying to do prospect that I've not really had any time for anything else. And now I'm thinking, oh, I actually have a. Um, you know, I've I've got to get other things sorted. So the the time to play games is becoming smaller and smaller. Um, yeah, so really, I've got <laughs> nothing. I, I've played a bit of Nuclear Throne where I can at, on lunch breaks, but okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, Do you want to talk a little bit about that. And that's fine. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge Thrones fan. I've been playing that since it was in early access, which was what, like, me too, me 2013, too. I think it came out. So, I'm yeah, still yeah. still not tired of it. I absolutely love uh, Nuclear Throne. Um, I think it's a brilliant game. Um, but yeah, I don't really know what I could say about it. I just love it. <laughs> Well, what's the, what's the key things in the the, the the game itself? I mean, this, the, for the benefit of the audience, can you describe it? Uh, uh, I guess it's um, permadeath roguelike. Uh, you are a mutant in a horrendous wasteland of monsters. Um, there is a throne. Uh, it's a nuclear throne. And nuclear throne. there's a monster yeah. on it, and you want to overthrow that monster and become... I guess the king of the wasteland, and so you've got to kill stuff with guns and knives and all sorts to, to reach it. But it's ex- extremely difficult. There's lots of boss battles and enemies to, to kill, and it's just so like so. It's, it's a top-down 2D sort of action adventure game, but it's a roguelike. Yeah, with lots of explosions. A ton of explosions, especially if you're yeah. playing as melting. Oh god, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I just thought I'd, I, it's just. Um, it's nice to know that developers still um, like yourself. Like I said, I know you've been plowing yourself into Unbox, and that's fine. That's more than fine. It's admirable. But uh, it's time when to, to, to turn off and go, I'm just going to do something else for a bit. Give me a break. And, then that, and you know, some of the best developers are, are players of games. Of course they are. The best ones are the ones that I see are a fan of the medium they're making for. 
Um, but uh, I've also found in this show that the younger developers, more the experienced developers, generally find themselves lost in the game they're making, whereas the older ones they tend to uh, like and, and, and they are able to disengage and just play something else for a while. Um, it's just the thing I've noticed. So yeah, because when I asked this of an older developer, they'll rattle off about five or six games. It's just, you know, it could be anything from Skyrim to to FIFA. It's just like, wow, okay, they've got the time to do that as well. Like, apparently so. Apparently so. Okay, well that's it for the first half. Um, let's move on then to the second half, where we delve deep into Unbox Newbie's adventure. First question, it's not really a question, it's more like a request. Can you tell us, what is Unbox Newbie's Adventure? Sure, it's a 3D platformer about the ultimate postal service, self-delivering cardboard boxes. So it's uh, very much a, a love letter to the 90s, uh, like in the classics like Mario and Banjo, you're going to be uh, exploring giant worlds, completing challenges, uh, grabbing collectibles, finding easter eggs, taking part in boss battles. Um, with a crazy story to go along with it, all about cardboard and um, uh, evil boxes that have gone rogue, that hate postage, and, and lots of other extremely weird things. And then once you're done with that, we've got a big single uh, multiplayer component once you finish single player. Um, we we love split-screen gaming, so we created the, a lot of local multiplayer game modes. Uh, we've got Delivery, which is like racing. Uh, the Arena, which has loads of game modes, uh, mostly about boxes just blowing each other up with fireworks with a variety of objectives. And we've got a ton of maps in the game now as well. I think we've, we're close to 20 maps in total, so uh, we've tried to create a hell of a lot of content because... Uh, you know, we grew up on things like GoldenEye and Mario Kart, so that's that's kind of the 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 void we wanted to fill. It's definitely interesting to see this game come out just when games like you know Voodoo Vince gets remade, remade, I should say, uh, and we've had them on the show, that's why I mentioned them. Uh, and then you have Ukulele arriving uh, as well, just purely out of like out of nowhere, like well, what's this? And then all of a sudden, these three D action adventure games which were everywhere in the mid-90s as you and I know um, suddenly making their reappearance and their their presence felt but what's really interesting and fascinating and I think is demonstrated excellently with 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 Unbox is how um, modern gay video game design sentiments and abilities and understandings are infused into into this game do you do you, do you see that yourself yeah I think um very early on, we identified that okay, we're ma- we're making a game that's heavily inspired by these games from the '90s, but a lot's happened since then. And so, mm. wherever possible, we tried to you know uh, bring forwards the good and leave behind the bad, and in the gaps, try and innovate. So, 
do things that either weren't doable in the 90s or because we're doing things now that just uh you know that, that are new they bring about new problems and we tried to come up with solutions for them and i think i think on a lot of points we did a pretty good job um and uh, and i think we've done a better job than a lot of our, our competing uh titles so on the flip side there's a lot of things i think we did poorly uh, and we could have improved so we've learned lessons for next time hmm I just think what it's the sheer amount of movement going on on the screen, and that's that's one thing that back in the nineties they couldn't do. It would it would um, bring a machine back then to to its knees. It's like I can't I can't do this. Brings machines I now can't. to their knees. I mean the amount of optimization yeah. we needed to go through. I mean that was that. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, forgive my ignorance. No, that. no. Sorry. But that, that's a that's a huge. I mean that's one of the things that we've all agreed upon. That if we did another unbox, we would slow the game right down. Like because because it's huge, we made the the character quite fast or you can pick up speed so you can get around it but because it was fast yes. we kind of went oh we should make it bigger and it was this you know there was points where the maps were far larger and it was just it was it was absurd um i think we would we could have made a much better game had we kept the environment smaller and made the characters a bit slower so that you had less going on so it made it less intensive so we could have put more in those environments i mean you go back to something like super mario 64 and each one of those maps i think it's still a great like there's still plenty to do on them but you know if you get a, a one of those flying caps on you can you can cross most of them in like 20 seconds they're not big but it's not it's yeah. not about quantity it's about quality and i think with unbox yeah. we tried to make we tried to do both we made giant environments with a lot of content packed in them and i think for the most part we succeeded in that but we made mm. ourselves we made a, a, a huge challenge for ourselves like we we did not make this easy um to, uh, to develop and I, I think we could have we could have probably done less with more but we did a good enough job of what we had thus far what you described there is that the sheer speed of movement Therefore, you know, you had to make larger levels for the, the, you know, for to keep the pacing or the content of the of the game to work. I call that Mirror's Edge syndrome. So all the levels of Mirror's Edge are, you know, designed or constructed in a similar way that all other third person or no, sorry, FPS games were. Turns out that mean, but because you're running so fast, you get through them very, very, very quickly, uh, and they just had to, you know, design the game to allow for that. Because they had to, uh, and people were complaining. Like, well, these levels are a bit short. Actually, no, they're not. They're average sized, but you're running through them, because that's the aim of the game to run through them. Speaking of running around, I'm going to ask you the first sort of design question: the movement of the box you're controlling, which is, by the way, you are controlling a cardboard box, a seemingly plain and unadorned brown cardboard box, which everyone else around you thinks is amazing, but you're just like, I'm just a box. This is quite funny. I'll talk about that later. But um, the movement I've, I found initially to be quite counterintuitive. Please don't take a negative on that. It's just, just my initial reaction. Was it always intended to be this way? Uh, and was it like an aspect of skill building on the player's part? Yeah, we kind of we we wanted it to be um, we wanted to do, wanted it to be a challenge, and at the same time that we found that generally people who played it for at least 15 20 minutes would start getting into the flow of it and by about 30 40 minutes if you if you're actually invested in the game at that point like you will get used to it and, and things like the unboxing feature means that even if you do screw up a jump or fall off a ledge you can pretty easily correct that 
so long as you've not used up all of your your unboxes. So mm. yeah, it, it was kind of we we went to uh, a great length to make it to try make it so that it's challenging but not uncontrollable like the initial version the game jam version of the box was literally you had cuboidic collision so you were just a cube from a collision standpoint and you just had Mm. a um, a torque effect being applied which made it roll and over about five six months we redesigned it countless times we're adding impulses uh the the actual collision for the box is quite heavily beveled so it's somewhere actually between a, a cube and a sphere to try smooth out the movement a bit to make it a bit more controllable. Mm. So that way, even though it's challenging, if you push forwards, you go forwards, and there's very little variance on that. You kind of bob left mm. and right a bit, but you're going forwards at all times. Uh, and, yeah. you know, I think we, we talked recently about maybe we would have um, kind of like an adaptive collision system where the faster you were going, we would change the collision to be even more rounded, maybe even change it into a sphere collider so that at high speeds you're you're still able to retain control but i think what we had thus far is it, it, it's always a challenge but if you if you play it enough and you play through the tutorial and you play through the through the first world it's all kind of designed to get you used to that kind of unorthodox way of playing and that's again from a marketing standpoint we knew that no one had ever made uh, a rolling game where you played as a cube like the whole part the, the a big part of that was to kind of defy expectations and and create something that you're never going to have experienced before because no one's ever done this. It felt like a dice with rounded edges. That pretty much, uh, yeah. That I, pretty much describes the uh, collision. Yeah, that's how I felt as I was progressing through the game. It just really feels like, oh yeah, this because I play a lot of board games and stuff. So oh yeah, this, it feels like a dice. Um, so you've mentioned the unboxing. Let's talk about that now. How does that come about? And why is it limited number? I think I know the answer to this question. I want you to tell us, as a maker. Well, why, why? How did it come about, and why is it limited? So the and what is it? Also describe what it is. Yeah. So we we came about. Um, I mean, we came up with the game and the mechanic at the same time during the uh, Unreal Engine 4 Christmas Game Jam of 2014, and the theme was "What's in the Box." Uh, and so Jack, who I mentioned before, he, he originally came up with a box which you could control. You rolled around, so you played as the box, and when you clicked unbox, you would, like a Russian doll, uh, pop out of yourself. So you would um, uh, basically leave behind the previous cardboard skin, and you would become a smaller cardboard box. And the original design was you would just sort of <clears throat> slide out of yourself, and you would be able to create these giant cardboard towers, uh, which you could then use to reach ledges. From there, we went, okay, let's make it like an impulse pop, so you kind of fly out. And that was the unboxing mechanic. We then we had a test map with a couple of ledges where it was like, try to get to that ledge, and if you couldn't make the jump, you could press unbox and pop out of yourself and reach it. Uh, we then made that uh, into a split screen um, kind of racing game mode so that all of us who were taking part in the game jam could play it together. Okay. And then from there, it was like, well, if you just keep clicking unbox, you can just fly over the map. Because we made this obstacle course with lots of um, lots of drops, uh, hazards, flamethrowers, all sorts. So we're like, well, if we limit the number of unboxes you can do, it means you've got to, yeah, you can correct yourself if you fall off a ledge or you can make a huge jump, but you've got to plan things out ahead of time. You've got to, you've got to try to think about what's coming next rather than just spamming it. And so we ended up with this kind of assault course for cardboard boxes. The finite Mm. unboxing mechanic worked because 
it meant that if you died you respawned and it was like right i gotta catch up to the others and now i know where to use that unboxing yeah. then down the line we started adding health as well so you have health boxes which replenish it and so it was a case of um taking that core loop of failing on a section because you ran out of unboxes respawning and now you know what to do and rather than having that as the entire map or the entire experience you have checkpoints you have health between it so it's more about micromanaging as you go um and then once we added in things like weapons as well, like if a homing firework is just about to hit you, hit unbox a yep. couple of times and it will arc past you. So we added all these mm. different things in that we're going to encourage you to use your unboxing and also um, encourage you to maybe be a bit more conservative. And it's that constant playoff that you know we thought that made the the multiplayer really fun. It certainly does. It certainly does. It's uh, it, you think oh he's only got one or two left, but you don't know, and then. Turns out he's got all of them left and he hasn't used any of them and he's dodged it and it's, yeah, it's, it's really good. It adds a lot of unknowns and chaos to the proceedings, which is not never a bad thing in a game like this. I think we, we wanted to, yeah, we wanted to create sort of like learnable chaos. Like you're never going to know exactly mm. what's happening, but you're going to know roughly like what, you're going to learn what the rules are. You're going to learn what the maps are like. And it mean, it's it's resulted in a game that despite my team <sighs> playing this for 31 months straight pretty much every day we still enjoy playing multiplayer like if there's an excuse you know we got to test some multiplayer maps we got to do this or that we always jump at the chance to because it's still a really fun experience and again toot my own horn on this but like there are a lot of other you know playing single player for me now is absolute tedium i absolutely hate playing unbox single player because i've played it hundreds of times at this point start to finish mm. i've collected all of those collectibles hundreds of times wow. um you know i can do it you know i, I can do it with my eyes closed the multiplayer is it's always fun because it's always chaotic i always know how to play mm. i always know when when people are going to be shooting at me and when these things are going to happen but the specifics are always just different enough that yeah i have a blast let's talk about the visuals now the, la- the next question i've got there's a lot of contrasting colours in the design of Unbox, which is great. We've, we've, you know, thankfully we've gone away from the brown. Yeah, it's gone. Well, it's, it's, I, don't, it, I don't, I don't, I don't miss it's it. It's not great for making gifts, is what we've learned. If you want, if you, if you have a gift filled with a, a variety of colours, it, it pushes up the the file size. So making gifts it, of Unbox has been an absolute nightmare. Yeah, that is true. Could have warned you about that, but anyway, just is the way of things. You could do, you could do like a. Maybe do a black and white one and say, "Oh, look, it's you know, it's all turned into the period." But anyway, how do you balance this against the need to inform the player on where they can go? I guess we, um, well, what one quick easy way of, of of sorting that was we, because we were playing Rocket League after we started developing, the arrow that points towards the ball. Uh, we thought was really useful so there's basically a yeah. rocket league arrow in unbox if anybody recognize things where's that arrow from it's from rocket league we just lifted it straight from it because it works and that arrow points yeah. you towards npcs towards the next objective and a challenge uh, we tried to make it as helpful as possible uh, and that got around an issue of you know do we have a, a a map that's always on screen or a map that you can bring up or you know loads of signposts everywhere we found that just sort of pointing people roughly in the right direction and letting people then figure out how to get there and the fact that you can always unbox over you an obstacle um, made it a lot more fun. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's one of the things I'm proudest of, even though we kind of ripped it off from Rocket League because it just it works so well. So that was one quick way of getting around any kind of issues of directing players. 
the mm. other one was yeah trying trying to be smart with with things like lighting um which we used a lot more in the initial versions we had to kind of tone that stuff down just because of you know trying to balance uh, the game from a performance standpoint but we tried we tried to use lighting to try guide players um things as well like uh, all the challenges are given out by players who are on um the npcs are on basically what we call npc podiums these big stands which are quite bright and colorful as you approach them or get near to them they it fades in a music track on top of the existing world track that's themed to that character um so if you go near qd sort of japanese music starts playing if you go near cray like fun childish music starts playing so we tried to think of not just visual ways to to rope people in but also um grab them with the audio and it's the same with things like if there's a hidden stamp, it emits a, a low sparkling noise. If you've collected 100 out of 200 tape per world, those start making noise as well. So even if you can't see them, and they are, they're quite sparkly, they're bright and golden, have particles coming off of them. But even if you can't see them, because there is a lot of stuff in the world to distract you, you will be able to hear it. So we, we tried to use all the senses, you know. Lots of very catchy visuals for things like collectibles and where the challenges are. Audio that uh, fades in and is very specific to what it's trying to represent. And then just putting in mechanics like the ability to bring up your arrow and point you towards those core pieces of information. Um, in total, kind of, I think, really helps guide players through the game. Excellent points. I mean, that's this. That's exactly why I constructed that question. Is this the get an idea of you know because it's 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 quite a lot going on so visually and audio which i didn't mention and you're right to bring it up is that's how you did it that's how you direct people it's um and audio is just it used to be understated it used to be a poorly understood because the technology of the machines at the time couldn't really you know uh, exploit um directional audio but now I'm not going to say we take it for granted far from it but we do you know developers now exploit the fact that there are many there's two senses typically being used here, sight and sound. And uh, I'm not going to say they're 50-50, but they just complement each other far more than they've ever done before. And um, certainly when I'm playing VR games now, I'm really, really seeing that come to the fore. So it's really it's lovely to see that, and the sound design finally becoming its own. And you clearly delved deep in with with unbox yeah well we, we kind of you know we've seen this for years from behind the scenes as well as gamers the audio is always crammed in literally at the last second and it's not given mm. any thought they're not given the resources or the time uh to to actually innovate and improve the the experience so yeah. you know we brought on our audio guy who's a the childhood friend of mine i've known him since i was like four um right. we hired uh, uh uh matt griffin um because I'd worked with them on numerous audio projects of my own. And it was like, it, it was just no brainer. We both grew up playing these sorts of games as kids. We knew exactly the kind of look and feel that we wanted to achieve. And I think he was getting a bit frustrated from other jobs that he'd done that audio was always given the, sh the shortest end of the stick. And so, I mean, we, we brought him on about five months maybe five, six months into development. And it's why, I mean, there's an hour and a half of original soundtrack in the game. Uh, there is a huge amount of sound effects. I think there's like 1,500 uh, sound effects, all with FMOD settings to mix and modulate them so that they sound different, um, depending on... Like the box, for example, uh, the sound of the box rolling, impacting things 
is modulated and changed based on the surface that you're touching, the speed with mm -hmm. which you hit it, the number of unboxes you have. We went to great lengths to make all of these subtle things that I don't think if you asked anyone, hey, did you notice this? They would consciously say yes. They'd be like, oh, I didn't notice that. But the brains are noticing it behind the scenes. And, you know, it, it's... I think I was extremely proud of what we did on that front because the sound of music in the game, I think, goes way above and beyond what you would expect from an indie title. I think Griff absolutely knocked it out of the park. And, you know, it's no surprise, he's now working at Platonic. And there's a very good reason for that. His CV was unboxed. Wow. Well, that, that, that says it all, doesn't I, it? I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have to say anything other than that, really. It's like no, the, no, the, well the, done. Work, um, the work was great. He proved himself. Yeah. Yeah, it, um, like you said, the, the brain is an extraordinary thing and it can easily trick it. I'm not saying you were, you know, deliberately trying to trick the people playing it, but, you know, what would a box of, of its own volition sound like as it rolled around? Probably this. And this is what you've done. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing feat. Well, I, um, I do think games are an art of manipulation. You know, that what... A thing that you, a thing that's basically, I guess, uh, a thread across all games is you want players to, you want players to do things to your design, and in doing so, think that they were they're the ones who came up with it, or like they had the bright idea to do a certain thing, all mm. while working within the confines of your design. So you you want them yeah. to feel a, a self satisfaction and a reward for accomplishing things. But you know that they were going to do that, and you know that all of them are going to do that because that's how you've designed it. it doesn't always work that way, but the making games is all about creating a set of rules, not not putting those on display, masking them behind layers of, of story, of art, of audio, and then manipulating people so that they then carry out those things and feel really good in doing so. Because that's what we're here for. Mm. We're making games to make people feel good. Um, but yep. you can't just do you can't go up to someone and say feel good you've got to make them feel like they're making themselves feel good mm-hmm unless mm -hmm. they're playing a witness oh sorry no that was unfair I'm being silly um, no uh, silly it, uh, I'm being facetious but uh, yes next question using an open world model there's the tendency for players to suffer from choice paralysis what have you done in terms of game design to overcome this problem I guess we um, we tried to make the each world, I mean, visually very distinct and engaging in their own ways. So they they all have their own things. So world one is uh, quite easily accessible. You can see pretty much the entire map, and there's a really cool focal point in the middle with a giant tower, which you just want to go and explore. World two being very icy and having lots of almost like roller coaster like tracks that you can roll around. Uh, world three being uh, uh, covered in temples and lots of uh, secret things to explore and hazards that pop out out of nowhere. So we, we first off tried to make the worlds quite engaging and something that immediately you're going to want to explore. And because you can roll around and unbox and, and move quite quickly, uh, you can get around places quite fast, but there's also we try to encourage people with things like signposts and NPCs and Easter eggs to kind of slow down and read up, talk to characters, find out what's going on, um, explore the little kind of set pieces that we've designed and set up. And then, again, by clicking the D-pad, you can immediately bring up that arrow that points you towards the main uh, characters that give you the main challenges, which will uh, reward you with stamps if you complete them, and it's getting stamps that unlocks the boss battle. It's completing those boss battles that progresses the game and 
uh, rewards you with more narrative uh, and ultimately concludes the game. And then amongst all of that, players know just by hitting the back button and from talking to NPCs that there are uh, hidden zippies, so cardboard boxes that have been captured that you've got to go free, much like the gobos from... Um, uh, uh, from uh, Croc, uh, the, okay. there's uh, there's hidden tape scattered around. There's the hidden stamps. Uh, there's the uh, the mysterious dag diaries. Uh, there's Easter eggs. Uh, there's all these things that you can go out and explore. Uh, and so basically, to avoid people not really knowing what to do, it's like okay, you've got a massive world to explore that should be engaging, and there's lots of just fun things like ice to slide on, vehicles to drive. Very quickly, you start to learn that there's lots of hidden secrets which, you know, reward you. If you get hidden stamps, then you're progressing the game. If you collect all the tape or find all the dag diaries, then you get cosmetic unlocks. And we have like 40,000 permutations of cosmetics. There's an absolute, a huge amount of cosmetics in the game. So that they're fun to unlock. Uh, and then again, if you just want to get through the core gameplay, hitting the D-pad tells you exactly where to go, and hitting the back button shows you what your progress is on, on that front. So, at all times, yeah, we tried to alleviate those common issues of like not really knowing where to go in an open world, or having been around it once, going, alright, well, I'm bored now, I've seen it all. We tried to, I guess, have a lot of replayability in there. Yeah, yeah, just... I felt that. I mean, that's the biggest worry that I call it. I name it after games. I call these things like the Skyrim syndrome. What am I going to do now? We can go and kill a giant over there. Excellent. You know, it's, it's there's so much content and, you know, it's very easy for to become directionless, but there isn't directionless. You can, there's certain aims and goals you can achieve and, and by pure, by, typically by accident, you go, oh. I've actually now completed this section. I've got all these stamps, and now I move on to the boss battle. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Well, yeah, and get, well, but, games uh, like Skyrim as well, I mean, they're, they're very, you know, it's almost wasteful. There's huge chunks mm. where it's just open plains with some flowers, and it's it's not engaging to most players. And again, it's an issue that I think we had with Unbox, where we have these giant worlds, and we were very keen to not have dead space. Um, and we certainly had that in the initial designs of the maps. In fact, there was there was a whole world which we ended up cutting from the final version of the game. But even if we kept it, we'd have had huge problems because there was just gigantic sections of it that were just boring. So there was nothing there, and there's nothing there's nothing that we could have possibly put there to fill the space out. So it's yeah, you got to be careful with open world games. Like just because your game engine or your, or a platform you're on can handle a gigantic space and it looks really cool in a trailer, doesn't mean you should actually do it because if a player's running around a you know five square mile plane of grass, well you know after the first couple of steps, I guess real boring. Yeah, running through fields of wheat. I don't know why I wouldn't <laughs> want to do that. No. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Satire. Come on, give me a break, Andrew. Satire. Anyway, um, no, I was about to say that Bethesda would argue back that it's part of the experience. Like, well, if you want to run through it, yeah. That, that, that's probably their, their typical response. And they always fast travel as well, but you have to get there in the first place. Anyway, I think you've done a fantastic job of, of not creating a paralysis of the player. There's always, always something to do. I found that whenever I'm playing it, it's just like, oh, I haven't done that yet. It's just, you know, I know you've done it all, Andrew, because you've you, you, you built the game. But for me, it's just the, the amount of uh, things you discover is ridiculous. So, yeah, well done to you and your team. Can't uh, thank you enough for making such an extraordinary game. I appreciate the kind words. So, there it is. That's the end 
thank you very much for, for being on it's been fantastic having you on thank you for having me it's been a good discussion and yeah I'm, I'm, you, I can tell you got a lot out of it um, the game uh, so it's uh, Unbox Newbies Adventure it's out on Xbox One and PS4 and Steam any other platforms and it is on Steam and any 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 plans on doing a certain platform that begins with S absolutely so we are we're currently working yeah. on a Nintendo Switch version uh, we'll actually be right. on the on the Nintendo booth at Gamescom this year in about three weeks so if you go mm-hmm. if you come to Gamescom do drop by and uh, yeah uh, we don't have a release date on that but hopefully that should be coming quite soon what an extraordinary platform that is I mean how Nintendo pulled that out of their bag, I don't know. But uh, oh, I, lo- yeah, I, I yeah. love it. I think, I think it's I think it's the a culmination of ten years of the Wii and the Wii U and the way that mobile gaming has shaped things. Um, yeah, it, it's one of the, it's not, now in retrospect, it's like duh, of course they were going to do that. It completely fits their mo, and I I, mm. I think it's great that once again they've done something completely different to their competitors and have decided again to focus on the games, focus on the fun because that's what matters. Look what happened to Microsoft. Talk about hubris. I mean, yeah, the one that whole TV, TV, TV thing. Like, what are you doing? You know. But anyway, that's a debate for another time. Again, thanks, Andrew, for being on. I do wish you the very best of luck in your future endeavours, and of course, you're welcome to come back and talk about them. Thanks, and I certainly will. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review. And you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me, any feedback on the show or actually you're a developer you listen to the show and want your game featured on it please do email me at chris at spong.com also don't forget to check out the computer game show which is the stablemate podcast should we say of spong.com bye